Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast and without them, I'd have quit long ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy for behind-the-scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. I'd like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And finally, I need to let you know about a new project. Wouldn't it be great to be able to interact with all sorts of folk who are into historical martial arts in one way or another without trolls, ads, algorithms, or Russian sex bots getting in the way? I think so. And so I have spent the last many months creating just such an online community, swordpeople.com. It's built on the Mighty Networks platform, which means we are paying for hosting and the use of their software, servers, and tech support, so we are the customer. We are not handing over our data to be sold to commercial interests, and so there is no incentive for algorithm-driven fear-mongering to maximize time on the platform. It's as pure as social media can be. At the moment, we have four levels of membership. The first is free. This gives you access to the main discussion areas and events and so on. Secondly, we have the Support Sword People for £5 a month. This gives you access to all of the above, plus the satisfaction of helping to support the platform and access to live streams and my train-along sessions. Thirdly, we have Solo Scholars at £20 a month. This gives you access to all of the above, plus all of my online courses that can be done alone. That is solo training, footwork, breathing, meditation, and the Recreate Historical Swordsmanship from Historical Sources course. And finally, we have Mastering the Art of Arms at £40 a month. This gives you access to all of the above, of course, plus all of my online courses, including the Complete Longsword course, the Complete Rapier, Medieval Sword and Buckler, and the new How to Teach course. We will be phasing out the Teachable hosted Mastering the Art of Arms subscription, but don't worry, if you have already bought courses on Teachable, this won't affect them. I am hoping to add premium content from other instructors in the near future. We will also be adding the ability for creators, such as smiths, publishers, and so on, to post their work in a marketplace, so if you're looking for a new sword, new helmet, or new book, you'll know where to go. There will be no paid ads, no paid promotions, nothing like that. This means we will be entirely dependent on the users of the platform to pay for it. So if you're thinking about joining, please consider one of the paid options. You will probably find that there are topics, tags, and so on that you would like added or edited. Let me know what you want and I'll do my best to make it happen. This is for you, so tell me what you want. Please note, there will be teething trouble. This is a first-of-its-kind online community for sword people, and we are new to the Mighty Networks platform. There will be issues that crop up. They will be dealt with as quickly and fairly as possible, but you should expect some technical problems in the beginning. But you should not expect bad behavior. 
The code of conduct is absolute and will be enforced without mercy. The too long didn't read version of that is be nice, be friendly and be fair. Anything that even smells a bit like trolling will result in eviction. So if you think you can behave yourself like a reasonable adult, go to swordpeople.com and click request to join. It's fast, easy and straightforward. Platforms like this are entirely dependent on network effects. It will only work if people come and join it. It has little value to the single user. So be bold and be brave. If everyone like you joins, it will be awesome. You can get Sword People on your phone or any other device by downloading the Mighty Networks app and signing in. If you're opting for one of the paid levels, I would greatly appreciate it if you would join on your computer so we don't have to pay 30% of our revenues to the App Store or Android. So I will see you at swordpeople.com. And now without further ado, let's get on with the interview. I'm here today with Dr. Mark Geldof, who specializes in all kinds of historical violence, which should suit my listeners down to the ground. He has a DPhil in history from the University of Oxford on change and continuity in English elite conceptions of violence, 1450 to 1560, and an MA entitled The Heart, the Foot, the Eye to Accord, Procedural Writing and Three Middle English Manuscripts of Martial Instruction, which again is right on the money for us. <laughs> so, as well as academic papers actually relevant to our historical martial artists. So without further ado, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, just to orient everybody, whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, I'm based out of uh, Regina, Saskatchewan. So it's the bit of Canada right in the middle. That's uh, You could draw it with a ruler. Um, so it's uh, uh, if, you, if you go uh, measure roughly equally from Vancouver on one side, Toronto on the other, and you meet in the middle, that's roughly where Saskatchewan is. All right, so about 3,000 miles from anywhere. Just about, yeah. <laughs> so it's a very, very continental weather here. I can imagine. Um, so how did you get into studying historical violence? Um, right. And incidentally, do you actually practice any historical violence? Um, I, I have to, this is one of the, uh, the questions I was expecting and, and that I haven't had to answer in a long time. But uh, I got into, well, I mean, interest in history is is quite long it you know started when i was i was like 10 12 uh reading up about you know military aircraft and stuff my grandfather was a navigator with uh the rca rcaf during the war so that was sort of my intro to history being a lot of history is about wars so there's sort of a natural kind of path to follow um i got into the sort of medieval uh side of it um later on and my introduction to historical martial arts and i should say that in quotes uh, i was actually through the society of creative anachronism um, okay. i started with them when i was about 17 <clears throat> and i learned fairly quickly of course that what they do isn't strictly um and and i don't think for the most part they they portray it as an attempt to reconstruct medieval medieval combat but it is extremely competitive and so right that sort of experience um, made me more interested in how the stuff would have actually worked in uh, its historical context. Um, sure. But knowing, and, of course, that if, the two are not connected. Yeah, in, in fairness to the SCA, I mean, it's there in the name, creative yeah, yeah. anachronism. <laughs> exactly. it's, not, it's not society for the pedantically precise reconstruction of no. historical swordplay. No, no. <laughs> As you could I, rename my school quite quite happily. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course, I mean, there's... there's uh, uh, great value in pedantry um you know sure. 
<laughs> uh, so that's sort of sort of the uh, the start and um, you know interest in sort of the uh, uh, archaeology of violence, uh, physicality of of the performance of violence, that sort of thing. And um, I did that sort of parallel to going into an academic uh, uh, field. Um, I kind of retired from from the SCA about it was about. Uh, 2012 or so, I stopped sort of competing, but there was about 18 years worth of worth of being in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I never really did practice historical martial arts, and I don't currently. But I'm, I've been an observer of it for a long time. Um, okay, yeah. So primarily the medieval side of things, you've not been seduced to the Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it's it's sort of. Um, uh, I spend a lot of time in the transitional period. Mm-hmm. Between the uh, uh, the late medieval and the early modern, which is where a lot of the really interesting sort of changes and things happen, and also continuities, um, but it is also where most of the the uh, the literature is. So most of the scholarship deals with that. Um, the material I've worked on specifically is the earliest English material, mm-hmm. which is roughly fifteenth century, yeah. um, and uh, yes, yeah, so that's. But of course, I have to keep you know a, a close eye on what comes after it because so much of what is done to understand the earlier material tends to be based on later developments. And then, okay, could you of course, just unpack that a bit? Yeah, um, I think the uh, one of the issues with the earliest stages in the development of fight texts, so text or illustrated illustration based instruction, is the choices that early creators made about how to start presenting that material. So developing it into that medium. And uh, the later, you know, later 16th, 17th century material, there's enough of a community, there's enough variety in the texts, there's enough uh, practitioners that it becomes uh, sort of self-sustaining. So you can compare texts with each other, you can compare different approaches in the different languages. Germans stuff like this. Very early on, though, they you have material that has to start from somewhere, um, and it's not, of course, coming out fully formed. So, looking for um, the analogs or the patterns that creators chose to follow in developing those texts is sort of where I've spent most of my time. Okay, I have a question for you then. All right. Yeah, um, Fiore wrote his manuscripts. 1400 to 1410, somewhere yep. in that range, right? So they're pretty early. Yeah. Okay. Um, the earliest German sources might be a decade or two earlier. Yeah. Right. And through the 15th century, you have German manuscript sources, which yeah. are, compared to Fury, extremely crude in presentation. Yeah. <laughs> right. So with Fury, what you have is a coherent picture of the entire art yeah. from wrestling on foot to wrestling on horseback and everything in between yep. with all the knightly weapons in armor, out of armor, etc. Yeah. Presented in a consistent, coherent, organized way. Yeah. Right. A full century ahead of yep. a similar document from anywhere else. Yeah. Including Valley. I mean, compared to, yep. compared to Fiore, Valley is relatively primitive in terms yep. of presentation. Right. Yeah. So my question then given what you're saying about precursors and models and, and whatnot, how the hell is the earliest source the most sophisticated? Yeah. 
right? Uh, okay, we've got we've got one thirty three, which is earlier, but that's yeah. and that's actually relatively sophisticated too. Yeah, it's coherent. Yeah. It's organized. Yeah, the whole text is organized according. You know, basically, here are the seven wards, and then it organizes all the plays yeah. around the wards that you start in, and it's it's beautifully done. It's a less complex subject than Fury because it's just yeah. Thorn and Bucker. It doesn't have the wrestling or the mounted combat or any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so basically, where are the models that led to One Thirty Three and Fury? Well, um, I I know I'm treading in in territory that isn't quite my own when I'm talking about uh, Fury, but okay. Um, I am. It's definitely mine. So I'll, I'll tell no, you no, if you step of in course, a single. Absolutely. <laughs> so, but I mean, I mean, I've seen your work, uh, Bob Charette's uh, Armesere, the 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 book he put together that, that yeah. breaks down, like sort of shows that logical tree of yeah. putting the things together. Um, my theory with Fiore is that he was following a couple of precursors. The uh, the notion of illustration with short verse or kind of mnemonics mm-hmm. is something um, already well established in in uh, things like uh, B-series um, and the use of sort of symbolic uh, illustration along with text. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a in a general sense, sort of the text production and the artistic approach is already well established within sure. the Italian and Latin language communities. As far as his putting together the sequences, that that could be an adaptation of um, of sort of a problem-solving approach that might come out of uh, rhetoric or law. But again, it's we're taking a, a sort of a structure as opposed to a, a step-by-step approach. Uh, sort of that when he put together this this text, unlike a lot of the other people who who did illustrated texts, he was trying to assemble it in a way that would make it possible for someone to follow it from the book. Yes, yeah, as, as you to, said, and all of these things will be easily understood. Yeah. You know, from the text and the pictures, all of yeah. these things will be easily understood. He says it in the introduction. Yeah. And yeah. he's not wrong. No. It took no. us a couple of decades, but we got there. Yep. Well, and, uh, I guess the other big thing too, and this doesn't quite answer the question as to where it came from, but it's it's influencing the fact that it exists, is that I don't think Fiore produced any of those Except for possibly the very last, the the one that's in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, which I think uh, is he posthumous. was dead. He was posthumous. Yeah. 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 So um, these weren't being produced as sort of uh, self-promotion texts, mm. which is certainly something like uh, I think it's Paulus Call. There's a few of the Talhofer-like texts that are largely like they're clearly incomplete, or there's been a lot of editing going on to just keep sort of highlights, uh, and those I think are more about promoting the the instructor to patrons than anything else. Right. Fiore, I think, was working from a position of s- sort of security and, and safety, so he didn't have to self-promote. He could sink more time and attention into constructing a method through text that, would, that could then be used. And this also corresponds okay. roughly with a period where you have more interest in the production of instructional texts for themselves. Um, sure. Uh, the the Germans have the whole Kunstbuchlin uh, approach, which is, also has the Merrick verse, the the mnemonics uh, there, and that's certainly influencing a lot of the text based instruction in German language. So um, Ringeck stuff like that. That's very similar to the to those sorts of things. The uh, Italian language stuff producing more advanced 
artists' books or books on engineering or uh, military engineering. Um, the uh, the first books on constructing fortifications and things like that. They're coming out of that same community. Mm-hmm. So I think Fiore is representing one thread of that. Um, but he ends up sort of being both ahead of his time and then uh, a little too early. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So nobody nobody immediately follows off from him. Um, there's there's the gap. So yeah, that, it, it, is, it is extraordinary to me how... Yeah. Uh, it's a bit like that line in Highlander where where they find this ancient scrap of an ancient sword in the in the cement wall from the oh yeah the, yeah because katanas cut into concrete walls without sustaining significant damage yeah. of course they do because um, it's Highlander but anyway <laughs> that's poor and, concrete that's yeah poor concrete. and and the and the the love interest archaeologist um, says finding that sort of blade construction in something that old is like finding a jumbo jet in the stone age. Right. <laughs> and yeah. when I look at Fiore in comparison to the, the manuscripts around yeah. Fiore's manuscripts, it feels like it's a jumbo jet in the stone age. Yeah. But then I am slightly biased as a, yeah. Yeah. As a convinced <laughs> no, Fiorista. Mean, yeah, you are right. I mean, it's, I guess, um, I think it would be possible comparing across different disciplines, I, I think there might be, if one wanted to look at some of the uh, sort of abstract um, thinking that goes into the construction of Italian, either say medical or legal texts, mm-hmm. you might find a closer, some sort of an analogy there. But Fiore combining that with the illustration, that becomes kind of more unique. That's, uh, it is harder to find. Yeah, it's, it's groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's get you on to yep. slightly more comfortable territory for you. <laughs> um, so you studied um, the three English manuscripts right. from the 15th century. Uh, we've had Paul Wagner on the show talking about them from a practical yeah. standpoint. Um, I'm not asking you whether you've listened to that episode, um, but I am curious as to where you think they came from and how right. practical it is to extract a, an interpretation from them. Yeah. Yeah. That is the sort of the biggest question with those texts. So um, for context, uh, and and I will agree, I haven't actually listened to the podcast you had with Wagner, although I have read his work. So I'm familiar with in general terms, although uh, if he's if he's had any big sort of revelations in the recent years, I'm not aware of those. Um, so I'm a little dated, <laughs> but the uh, so the three English texts, they're unillustrated, they're predominantly in prose, uh, Middle English. There's a short bit of verse, simple rhyming stuff in one of the texts. Um, And my study of them suggests that they come from um, one of two places, either at the same time or sort of were created around the same time. The first is they're following uh, recipe literature very closely. So this is uh, procedural instruction, Mm -hmm. one step after the other. So with ingredients, you know, you take this and you combine it with this and then this, and you have this result at the end. And that's, uh, in general terms, what all of the English texts do. They tell one figure to do this, then this, then this. There isn't any if this, then this construction, which is a much more familiar approach to within German texts. So in the Merrick verse, you have these sort of little rules that you could remember. Yeah. So and if he's in ox, break it with exactly. crump or whatever. Yeah. There isn't any of that in the English stuff. Although I think there are some readers who have, who think they've found it in there, but, and, and I'll, um, 
I'll accept that there is a possibility that that slips in from time to time as part of the instruction on sequence. Mm -hmm. But it is just, it's a, it's orthopraxis. Do this the correct way, this way, one step after the other. <laughs> it's the, just like Tai Chi. Yes, or yeah. Katas. And yeah. uh, James Hester suggested this, uh, actually, mm -hmm. when he was looking at the Harley text, that he noticed this, that there doesn't seem to be, um, it's just one person. There's uh, one or two passages which suggest, you know, imply there could be a, a, a partner involved, but it does really just seem to be one person. And in the rhyme, the verse section, it it maintains that that uh, pattern. Uh, mm -hmm. It's still not really like Merrick verse or a mnemonic. It's um, I'd argue that the verse piece in Harley, the earliest one, is actually just the author having fun with the language and trying to make something sound a little bit more literary. Okay. Um, so that's my reading of it. That would suggest to me that you can't construct a sort of back and forth the way you could with something like Fiori or with Talhofer or the other texts, which are depicting pairs of combatants. Yeah. You, you know what your opponent is doing and what you're trying yeah. to do about it. Yeah. And sometimes and it's explicitly stated when they thrust, do this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And there's, it's, I think, um, with Wagner, uh, he approaches it from the perspective that you can construct that. Um, there's a, a Braddock and Heslop, um, two guys who did a Paladin Press version of this back in okay. 2011. They approached that. it. Yeah, they approached it with the same the same position that this was depicting two people fighting, or that you could read it that way. Um, it is absolutely not the case in the uh, Ledal text, the long scroll. And the very short piece, the Titus uh, A25, those are definitely just for individuals. Um, and it's- but hang on, hang on. But, but yeah. the individual is doing something. Yeah. The reason that what the individual is doing is meaningful is because there is an implied opponent. Yes, but so I don't think you can- State definitively like, what the opponent is doing. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's, okay. I mean, you're sort of reading uh, shadow boxing instructions. Yeah. You know, that kind of a thing. The other parallel with the recipe literature is dance choreography. And I think that's probably um, deliberate for these early texts because I think they're mostly being produced for the same audience. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, sort of the middle gentry, um, people going into law, the sort of urban types. They're the ones who are starting to produce these um, sort of secular texts. And it's where the earliest dance choreographies come from. And those are, of course, giving instruction to two people or more than, than two, but it's still just procedural. It's your foot goes here and then here and then here. And they share some of the same terms. So a rake, um, uh, I believe there's a quarter that's referred to yeah. in the dance choreographies. Whether what is a rake in dance? Do you remember? Um, that's a, it's, a, I think, I think a diagonal step. So it's okay. a side step. Um, I think. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> okay. Because the, the, the people who look at the, the dance choreographies um, uh, also sort of speculate on reconstructing it, but they don't go so far as to actually do it, uh, at least not most of the time. They have the adva advantage, though, of having music to go with it. So yeah. with some of the dance choreographies, it's, it's for a particular named dance, and that goes with a particular named song. So you have a rhythm. Uh, there's, of course, no accompanying stuff for the, any of the fight texts. Uh, so you, it's up to the imagination for what's on the other side. Um, I think the other thing too, though, is that with these texts, they could have been 
designed for instruction with an individual without an opponent. So you are just going through patterns to sort of impress them into muscle memory and sure. to rem remember how these works. So in that way, much like a, uh, a kendo kata, where the movements are modeled off of the um, sort of antagonistic movements, which you're repeating over and over again to get the form correctly. Um, and part of getting the form right is memorizing the sequence of movements. So, so, so. basically, the 15th century English stuff is the Ida. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> okay. I think the best way to think of it. Um, yeah, I, I, there's there's good reason why I've never really done much with those texts is because, yeah. to my mind, they are they are not sufficient to recreate a yeah. definitive interpretation that you can demonstrate from. Yeah. You know, with a solid academic ground that you can demonstrate yeah. this is a probable correct answer. Yeah. A probable well, this, correct execution. Yeah. And there's two other reasons too why I think that's it's very difficult to do that, to go that far with this material. One is the dependence on later English material. So looking mm -hmm. at uh, silver and sweatnam and things like that and taking their vocabulary and applying it backwards, which I don't think you can safely do. Um, I agree. Because again, the, you know, the earliest English texts don't have any, there is no continuity. Um, we also don't know what, you know, who influenced Silver's choice in language, how well established that already was by the time he started producing his print work. Um, so when he talks about a quarter or something like that, or starts using similar language, while it, it might feel appropriate to, um, use that because it's still English, he's an English instructor, this, this sort of thing. Does it still mean the same thing in the 1580s environment in London, where you've got a generation worth of, of Italian and French and Spanish instructors there, along with their English contemporaries, and applying that to language used to produce a you know a short, very short fight text in 1430. And I think that's, that's the biggest one of the biggest problems with the attempts to interpret. The other one is that uh, often they're relying on on uh, uh, insufficient editions. So some of Wagner's uh, earliest material, um, I don't know if he's 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 probably upgraded to work with Hester, but his earliest stuff is based on Hutton. So this is Alfred Hutton's 1911 edition of the Harley manuscript, and Hutton was very enthusiastic. Yes. He's very interested in this stuff. He was not a paleographer. Uh, no. He regularly misread E's as O's. So, you know, there's, uh, there's a couple of pages in one of Wagner's earlier papers where he tries to explain a certain type of foin, the, a thrust, which yeah. is safe, safely to read it that way. But the modifying term is uh, misread by Hutton. So right. instead of it being um, maniad, M-E-N-Y-E-D, I believe is, is how Hutton does it. It's actually moved because it's the O... He misread as yeah. an E. The N is actually a V. And, you know, <laughs> these sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, he also doesn't, um, and, and this was one of the issues with Hester's first version of his Harley, is he didn't reproduce the uh, uh, line breaks. Right. So there are, there's at least one passage in Harley where the copying scribe, and it, it's a copy rather than an original composition, the scribe had an I skip and duplicated a word. Or uh, broke up right. a line, yeah. which you don't notice if you don't retain the line breaks. Right. So, sure. and because you have so little to work with, each kind of every word has weight, and yeah. so if it's been misread or it's been misplaced, 
So, yeah. How, how can you tell it's a copy? Um, partly because of reasons like that, the, uh, the sort of scribal errors that you really only get when you have someone copying from an existing text. Okay. So duplication or line skipping. So they, they start copying down one line and they realize they got it wrong and they go back and they continue it. Um, things like that. Um, that one also, there's uh, gaps left for uh, replication. So right. some, uh, or engrossing a, a title letter. So it is working from something that they, they already kind of know what the layout is. So they blocked their copy of it in a certain way. The um, let all text, the one that's on the long scroll, that one I'm sure is copied for a couple of reasons. One, it has that J let all attribution in it, which is shows up in the middle, but the Amen quad formula typically shows up at the end of a text to right. indicate who the copyist was. And if you break, and the lessons are out of order. If you break the lessons back up into order, you can re reconstruct what its original format probably was, which was several loose bifolds. Oh, so okay. Copied from loose pages, not knowing what the order was. Well, have you published this anywhere? That one has been submitted to the, uh, um, the Acta Periodica Duellatorum. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and that, my, uh, the let all thing, that's not in my thesis. I figured that out later. Okay. <laughs> it took quite a while to kind of. I can it. imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that one's, that one's. I, I, I can hear, I can hear like some of my listeners in the sort of <laughs> manuscript fetish end of the, yeah. of the listenership just sort of squeeing and going, oh my God, this is lovely. And I want to see the details. Yeah. Um, um, and obviously it's much better to see it than it is to hear it. Cause yeah. So the, um, could, could you just, so, when, when we're done with this, could you send me relevant links? I'll stick yep. them in the show notes so that yep. people who are yep. mad keen on, on <laughs> seeing how yeah. this scrolly thing becomes a bifold if you rearrange it. Yeah. So that'd yep. be brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. Um, yeah. So that's, yeah, that, that, is the other the sort of the final biggest issue with with anybody who does any work with the English material is that there isn't there aren't many reliable uh, editions of it that are available. Um, right. So there's James Hester's master's thesis, uh, which is a, a very good version of Harley. Um, all three are in the thesis I did, which of course still isn't published, but it is available online. Um, yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. I am working on doing a complete, actually, I tried to publish a paper, tried. I submitted a paper, uh, a longer paper on the Harley manuscript back in 2012 to the Antiquaries Journal. And so just before I started my doctorate and I got to Oxford, got an email from the editor saying, this is too long for us to publish because it was something like 12,000 words, which was <laughs> over there. That's quite long. Well, and it had an edition of it too, like the transcription. Yeah. Um, but our, the, the reviewer we sent your paper to would like to talk to you about it. And it turned out they just sent it to Sydney Anglo. Oh my God. Because of course, who else do you send it to? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, he wanted to talk to me about it. And I met him at the Warburg Institute after, you know, some ridiculously snowy day in February, which is now 10 years ago. And he said, you could, you could cut this thing down and publish it, but I don't, I don't think you should. I think you should take the other two texts and all this other stuff and put them together into a book and okay. do that. And I said, brilliant. And I still haven't done it. Ah! <laughs> so I'm, so I'm, I'm working. I've got, I've got sort of a draft manuscript of it. Yeah, um, yeah. I, there were some abortive attempts to talk to. So the other problem too, of course, is approaching editors at publishers who have tons of stuff to do. 
And so you send the stuff out and you wait six months and you never hear anything back. So, and then I was doing a doctorate, all this sort of stuff. So that got pushed back more and more and more. Mm. Now I'm kind of worried that I'm not going to get this thing out before Anglo dies. <laughs> He's man's 88 now. Uh, right. Is, is well, then you owe it to him to get it yeah. done. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's slight, slight segue into, <laughs> yeah. into, all right. Forget academic publishers. They're ridiculous. Most mainstream <laughs> publishers won't touch this because it's too niche. Yeah. The question really fundamentally is, do you need this for your CV for applying for <laughs> academic jobs or not? If right. you do, you have to go yeah. with an academic publisher. Oh yeah. If you yeah. don't, you can get it edited and published and out probably within three months without too much. Yeah. To do it yeah. It's not yeah. hard. No, I, I have wanted to have it published through an academic uh, imprint. So originally it was going to be, well, I was going to approach Boydell, yeah. um, Boydell and Brewer. Um, but that's kind of slowed down. I'm looking at a, a couple of other places possibility because the, it's also comparatively short, uh, it's about 50,000 words. Um, but I do have another project that is unrelated that if that got published, then I, I might change my, my mind about uh, insisting on this going to an academic one. But, but yeah, I am aware that, that uh, you know, the lack of reliable editions of this stuff is partly the fault of people who've produced reliable academic editions who haven't made them available, um, or at least available in uh, uh, you know, a more safe and stable format. Because, I mean, the thesis is around... But it's a thesis. And I mean, dissertations are great and stuff, but they have an audience of three. Yeah. You know, there's there's the supervisor and the examination committee, and they also don't have editors. So there are, I mean, there are errors in this that, I mean, I've corrected some. One of the shortest texts, the tightest text, is published. Uh, the most recent one was in the Electronic British Library Journal. So if you want an edition of that, it's in there. But the other ones, yeah. So it's, um, that is, it's an obstacle that, is, is another one of the things that people who study this stuff, especially from outside of the academic field, one might not be aware of, of just how much scholarship there is that's being produced that isn't accessible yet because of just the sort of gatekeeping nature of publication. Um, but also this, uh, it's kind of a, if you want to get this material, you sometimes have to go out of your way to find the academics yeah. who are producing it. And, and have them share it with you. Yeah. yeah I've done that you many might, times. Yeah. You might not be able to wait for for the traditional way of, of having the stuff accessible. Um, yeah. That's it's, yeah, it's I tricky. Because also the thing is, most people doing historical martial arts, um, they're not trained academics. They don't know where to find journals. They may not even have access to the journals even if they can yeah. find them because yeah. they're usually, <clears throat> sorry, usually you have to be like registered with an academic yeah. institution yeah, subscribe to that access, journal. Yeah. It's just, it is, it is a clusterfuck, frankly. Yeah. Um, so what, so my approach is as soon as it's ready enough, I publish it in book form with an ISBN and everything. So people can find it when they search on Amazon. Yeah. Right. Or yeah. search on my website or search on anywhere, anywhere yeah. where you're looking for, for text, it will pop up because yeah. it's, it's, it's widely distributed mm -hmm. and that way it's much more likely to fall into the hands of the non-specialist academic yeah. who's actually trying to figure out how, to, how swords work. Yep. Yep. Um, so I count this as a very strong vote and an offer of any, <laughs> any required assistance in yep. the self-publishing side of things. All right. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> uh, 
Oh, yeah, and regular listeners will have heard me rant about <laughs> self-publishing for a while. Yeah. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna head myself off and ask you another question. All right. Um, all right. So your DPhil, because Oxford has yeah. to be different, right? I was born in Cambridge, so you know Oxford. Yeah. Um, <laughs> change and continuity in English elite conceptions of violence. Yeah. Right. Now I have a pretty strong, clear idea. I think I know what that means because you know. I think yeah. I do. But. I think the average listener probably has no clue what right. that is. Yeah, the um, the sort of elevator pitch is um, I looked at uh, how certain groups of people in late medieval, early modern England thought about being violent or okay. performing violence. Most of that is um, through analysis of uh, court records, uh, so uh, legal records involving uh, acts of violence either by members of the social elite, so the squirearchy, the, the knights, um, the gentry, nobility, when they do manage to show up in courts, and... Yeah, because um, why would they bother? They're not normally <laughs> subjects of the well, courts. <laughs> but there's also the... Um, I mean, the, you'd be surprised at how... So this was the other, the other thing, too, is how the courts dealt with um, this community, which they knew had this relationship with violence, this belief that they had access to it. By virtue of their status and their and their uh, relationship to the enforcement of law, to the diffuse nature of royal authority, and plenty of money for armor and swords. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they have the means. Uh, they have uh, sort of these social um, structures which which enable it. Uh, they have retainers, all this sort of stuff. Um, but at the same time, they're also within a sort of a, a nascent state that has laws, that has uh, jurisdictions and stuff. But we already know about the sort of how how easy it is to blur the sort of individual interest with upholding of the law because you have you know, uh, sheriffs, uh, judges on sessions of the peace, things like this, who are also local landowners, people who are important. And you're, you're populating the sort of law enforcement community with locals. Uh, they have authority by virtue of their status. So it's really easy for people to rationalize using that authority even if it isn't explicitly given to them, to use force to get, you know, to solve their own problems. And the court knows this too. So the idea is that um, knowing these sorts of uh, blurring uh, boundaries, if you can track the um, continuity and change in that, so how the courts start handling people in you know, 1450, with this sort of stuff, and if that changes by the 14, or 1560s, or if it stays, you know, same in certain ways, then you get a bit of an idea of how the community is changing its perception of violence, uh, when it's appropriate, uh, what form it takes, and how the courts are either influencing that or are influenced by it. So that's the, the sort of the, in an abstract way, that's that's how, what I looked at. In a concrete that way. is the longest elevator pitch I've ever heard. Yeah, well, I did ask a question. <laughs> I did ask, I did the ask question. a question in it, so that diverted the. That's yeah. true. That's true. My fault. My fault. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> we're on the seventeenth floor by now. All right. So. <laughs> short, short ones are monog or uh, monologues. So yeah. 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 Um, okay. So what was the difference? How did these things change? Right. Um, two main differences. The first one is that uh, between the 1450s and 1560s. The, uh, the, the same people, people part of the gentry and the social elites, uh, began by using violence in a very militarized way, in a mm -hmm. very public way. So if you wanted to 
exercise force and you wanted to make it look legitimate, you did it in the open, you got your retainers together, you put on armor, and you went and you, you acted like a miniature version of how the royalty would be would yeah. would deal with their own issues. That started to lose its legitimacy or threatened um, central power by, of course, post Wars of the Roses, because you know getting your your guys together in 1520 and getting all armed up and going down the road to deal with a local is interpreted differently, not just by the locals but by the crown than it was before that. And so you have a hypersensitivity during the Tudor period to those sorts of demonstrations of power. And so the violence uh, starts to lose its militarized uh, dressing and it starts to become more private. So smaller groups of people or just individuals um, and you get less violence between sort of not exactly strangers, but people without familial connections. Uh, and you get more violence within families, or the violence shifts in its attention. So a kind of a privatization of violence uh, from what was previously much more overt so and in public. This is similar to what happened in dueling culture generally, where most duels were public, legal, yeah. and to settle some kind of point. Yeah. Um, and then they, by the middle of the 16th century duels were being fought in private, um, illegally. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it sort of, it sort of tracks that same change. And you think yeah. it, it, it comes from a difference in how the, the crown was perceiving the threat of basically armed nobles going around in small armies doing what they want. Yeah. That's the, uh, that's cert that's definitely the case in the, uh, the Tudor period and the later on in the, uh, 1500s, um, but it goes through a bit of a, a, a transitional period during the Wars of the Roses in which you still need lo uh, locals to be comfortable with getting being armed and, and going out and doing this stuff because the crown still depends on it. Yeah, armed service is still part of what they're yeah. expected to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's somewhat less sensitivity as to uh, over how much of a threat that is to the crown. Um, but uh, under under Henry VIII, there is a more active attempt to suppress that or to harness it more closely to the crown. So, uh, sort of an attempt to monopolize violence, um, which is sometimes how it's how it's phrased in that period. Um, okay. The crown's monopolization of violence. But that, I mean, that dates back to Edward III with the institution uh, yeah. of the coronet. Yeah, I mean, there is always a, a when, when murder became an offense against the crown rather than an offense against the person. Yeah, well, that did, it did kind of always. I mean, uh, killing a, a king's subject is always uh, a harm to the king. Yeah. So you have um, that type of felony is always something that's going to involve the crown. What's st also started to change, though, is that you had to resolve those problems through the courts. Because, I mean, even up into the middle f uh, 15th century, you, you, could, um, you could resolve... People accused of murder could manage to solve that through arbitration. <laughs> right. So, like it, now it depended on who it was. It depended on what the situation was. It depended on whether or not the court was more interested in maintaining local stability and uh, uh, order than enforcing the law. But later on, it becomes more important to enforce the law. So uh, because the crown had a stronger hold on maintaining local order. So rather than sort of smoothing things over with the locals to prevent 
sort of a snowballing effect of revenge and allowing them to resolve something through informal arbitration. They insisted on the court being part of that resolution. So you still have pardons and stuff. You still have a lot of people getting away with murder. Um, but the court isn't, um, is less interested in letting people solve those problems on their own so long as it keeps the peace. So that's another, another thing that's working on changing how, how people are, uh, uh, understanding violent acts, but also how they're performing them, okay. if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, so you're ma- mostly looking at uh, legal records then? Yeah. yeah okay. That's right. Interesting. Um, but you also, you have an opinion about um, methodology and experimental archaeology in the study of violence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, there's an article or chapter of a book you're working on called Can These Bones Come to Life? Yeah. So, right. That was, so this was kind of a parallel again with with how it started into this and you know back when so the SCA uh, being this sort of sport version of swordsmanship is sort of a behoord type yeah. combat people fighting on foot with sticks it's extremely competitive and especially where I started where we traveled the, you know thousands of kilometers a year and you know spent every other weekend going to a tournament because you wanted to fight other people and learn. And one thing the SCA does do very well uh, in recreating is the worship of prowess, you know, Richard Kuiper's idea, but uh, uh, chivalry really being about being good at fighting, yeah. <laughs> you know, being good at, at violence. Um, and the SCA does that very well in at least uh, sort of inculcating that in certain groups. And I was part of one of those sort of little communities where this is what we wanted to do. We wanted to be Good as we good at it as we possibly could, and one of the things I learned in that is just how many ways you can get hit with a stick. Yeah, <laughs> you know, even with the rules we have in effect, where you, you you can't deliberately strike the hands or the knees and below, I still got hit in those places. Um, I think the first time I ever got hit in the throat, kind of just I just sort of stopped and froze. Went, what? Oh, yeah, no, I'm okay. <laughs> but but also of how many different ways you can hit other people, you know? Yeah. Um, or how important it is to keep swinging. You know, even if you lose your footing and you're going down, if you see an opening and you can throw the Thank shot, you. you may as well. Yeah. Um, or in, because we, we do battlefield sort of stuff. So I'm in a field with 200 other people. And I have no idea who's who's nailed me in the head. Some guy, three three people down on the shield wall. And then I read um, uh, the Visby books, the uh, Thord, Bank Thordman's two-volume thing, yeah. the uh, Visby archaeological stuff. And there was a section in there in the interpretation of wounds. And they got a guy from the, I think it's this, the Swedish officer's school. He was a, a, a saber instructor. Mm-hmm. And he said, he was looking at these, the wounds. He said, oh yeah, well, you've got two people, they're facing each other and, and this is how they fight. And I'm, I'm reading this and I'm, I'm just, you know, like an 18 year old kid who's, who's just swung sticks around. And I'm like, no, there's, there's a, no. Like a dozen different ways you could land this here and not be face to face with the guy you hit. Yeah. And so that became kind of a sticking point with, for me, with a lot of the interpretations of things. So osteoarchaeology, we find uh, uh, the evidence of violent trauma on human bones. And there is this urge by researchers to interpret it, to construct a scenario in which this has happened. And no one is ever happy with just saying, well, uh, the parietal bone was hit by a sharp instrument at roughly this angle. 
Well, what happened was the, he'd been chopping logs. The axe was stuck in the in the stump that he chopped the logs yeah. on, and he tripped over and he hit his head on the axe. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, this is this is the thing. The even with, um, I mean, there is there there are some people who study this stuff who are very careful about pointing out that I mean, uh, even even sharp force trauma, which is indicative of some human agency involved, does not necessarily mean malignant human agency. I've cut myself so many times. Exactly. You know, um, but, you know, you get someone who has three or four perimortem cut wounds to the head. That's probably deliberate you know, yeah. human agency. But it doesn't mean that this person was, say, an executed prisoner or or things like, say, um, defensive wounds. So you have somebody who has a fatal head wound, but also has cut marks on a forearm or something like this. Yeah. And you say, oh, it's a defensive wound. So they went it like this. But it changes the interpretation if the arm is empty or the hand is holding a sword well it does this or a shield <laughs> yeah so you go from someone being just killed uh, you know a defenseless victim trying to protect themselves to someone in combat actively trying to protect themselves or fight an opponent we lack all of the rest of that context when all you're looking at is a skeleton in the ground even when you have battlefield stuff, like so the Battle of Towton, the mass graves there, or at Visby, and you know these people were killed in combat, uh, interpreting the wounds is still tricky because you don't know the situation in which these wounds are delivered within combat, or there are assumptions being made about what people think combat is like and what that's going to look like at the skeleton, and then drawing conclusions from that. So the multiple wounds to the head, people thinking, well, these are this is excessive, thus we have... Um, people finishing off wounded people with multiple blows to the head or uh, post-mortem mutilation of them or something like this. But, you know, I was in you know battle once and I got nailed like five times to the head before I could even hit the ground because right. there were three people swinging at me. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and, and they kept and, swinging until I dropped, you know. And, and it's, it is normal practice. You, if you can hit your opponent once, you hit them many yeah. times until they stop trying to hit you back. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, Fiori has this lovely situation where you've got the, the person wrapped up. So oh, both yeah, their yeah. arms are under your left arm yeah. and they have no access to their sword. And he says, I'll give you a good dose of cuts and thrusts. Yeah. I mean, that's not, yeah. that's not just tap them on the head and say, yeah, you're done. No, no that's no. whack them many times in the head, shove them a few times in the guts, make yeah. sure they're thoroughly dead and then drop them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and this was, it was that sort of thing that, that, um, that I decided I need to actually write something on this. Right. So it started out as a, a conference paper at the uh, uh, medieval conference in Kalamazoo, the mm -hmm. uh, international medieval conference we have in the North America. It's much like the one in Leeds. Uh, and the, that paper was actually called, uh, it's not over until it's overkill, which was a suggestion of my partner. who <laughs> <We laughs> thought that, cause that was the point was that this isn't necessarily excessive violence. Um, yeah. This is sufficient violence most of the time. Yeah, or, or the combat. normal level of violence expected in that context. Yeah, exactly. The, you have to consider that, that that's going to change depending on your situation. And uh, then that got expanded into uh, uh, the paper that's going to appear in this in that uh, edited volume. Um, and I kept working on that and did a much longer version that is in a, a collection of essays uh, edited by uh, Kelly DeVries and uh, 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 Tracy. I can't remember her first name now. Um but that one's in there, and it's it's uh, an attempt to demonstrate that these are the limits of interpretation from a historical perspective of this osteoarchaeological material, and that um, even though it might be frustrating that you can't produce these sort of satisfying scenarios that explain a sequence of injuries, 
knowing why that is, is the important part of studying it. That sure. the, yeah. So, I mean, one of the major uh, things I managed to determine is that you can tell the difference sometimes between sort of battlefield injury distributions and non-battlefield injury distributions. But it's a really narrow category in which you can do that. Um, there was one mass grave found at, uh, it was on the grounds actually of St. John's College in Oxford. It's probably from the early 10 hundreds and contains probably massacre victims of some sort. And their wound distribution is completely different from every other mass grave you get with mm. uh, wound distributions. But some of the other mass graves are also probably massacre sites, not necessarily combat victims. Right. So it's these are things you, you have a hard time telling the difference be, between. There's also, of course, lots of historical or uh, uh, even more modern uh, evidence to suggest, again, that this, you know, this sort of excessive violence interpretation is probably not appropriate because of just how resilient the human body is for short periods of time. Yeah. So I did a lot of work with sort of modern um, forensic studies and things about, uh, um, I, there was one paper that was a study of, um, was it physical movement after fatal stabbing injuries or something like yeah. that? There were a bunch of case studies where they were looking at what, how, how long could you continue to function with I went to injury? a lecture with a biopathologist mm -hmm. on exactly that kind of thing. And he told a story about a chap who got stabbed in the heart in a pub yeah. and was thoroughly pissed off, went outside, saw a bottle, broke it against yeah. the curb, came back in, glassed the guy who stabbed him in the face yeah. and then fell down dead. Did, did he leave the knife in when he did uh, No, I think the knife was pulled out. Oh, it was okay. Yeah, because that's the first thing I would have thought. Because yeah, 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 because it would it would sort of plug the wound a bit. But but apparently yeah. it has a lot to do with what stage of contraction the heart is in. If right. the heart is contracting, right. yeah, and the thing goes through it, yeah, it will tend to seal it. Yeah, right. It's you're still going to kill you, but it'll take a, yeah. a little while. Yeah, if so the heart the is you. expanding at the yeah. at the moment that it gets punctured. Then everything bursts, and you get catastrophic yeah. blood pressure right. loss and down you go. Right. So yeah, you know, so 50 -50. it's like a, that's a, a variable in the situation that, you know, you can't account for, of course, if no. you just got the skeleton, but also most historians aren't aware of, um, yeah. you know, I mean, how long can someone continue to be a threat, even though they're essentially dead, you know, they're not, this is yeah. non-recoverable, it's fatal, but if they can swing at you a couple more times, then it doesn't matter, you know, to Why you, because, yeah. you know. I mean, think of Mordred, I mean, the classic Mordred. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's... <laughs> Arthur stabs him in the belly with a spear and he literally yep. pulls the spear through his body yeah. to get to Arthur and then kills him at the other end. Yep. And, you know, he was writing for yep. um, for a, a knightly audience and yep. they would have called bullshit. If that, I mean, well, it, that sort of stuff does happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, uh, Richard Kuiper wrote about this, about uh, some of the really over-the-top depictions of violence in some of the romances. And it's like, yeah, there's there's certainly some exaggeration, but this is still... This is exaggerating somewhat familiar experiences, you know, yeah. people suffering tremendous injuries and still functioning. I mean, I always think of, uh, uh, it's in um, uh, Villard Duin's uh, account of one of the Crusades. There's the episode where he he and a few of his knights are separated and they're attacked by Saracens. And they, uh, one of one of his, his company asks if it would be, if it would be appropriate for him to go and get help. Like, would they think he less of him if he left them to go and get help. And he asks him 
while his nose is hanging off his face. He's, <laughs> he's like a hedgehog of arrows. Yes. And he has this hideous facial injury. And he's saying, am I going to look bad if I go and try and, and get help so that we don't all die? <laughs> and he's reassured. He said, no, that'll, this will still be uh, uh, your, your honor is safe. We're, yeah, yeah. We won't. And so he does. He gets help and he dies. Um, he doesn't survive this. But that was his concern. Yeah. And you think this this is the thinking that's going on in these people's heads, that this is this is the math they're doing. Just read some of the citations for Victoria Crosses, for oh, yeah. example. Yeah. And yeah. people I mean, are doing that kind of stuff all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was the uh how often, you know, somebody's yeah. said, you know, I was just mad. I was angry yeah. that I you know, there was in this situation and so yeah. Yeah. But the point of this is that if you are fighting someone who is trying to kill you, yeah. And you tag them once in the head. Yeah. If you stop, you're probably going to die. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you've got you, to hit them many times. It's not excessive. Yeah. It's necessary in that no. context. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You have you have to fight on that thinking, and in a very minor way. That was one of the things you know I learned fighting in the SCA was that you you keep swinging until the guy you hit says he's been hit. Yeah. Because you, know, you you don't go whack. Did that plant bang? Oh. Okay. No. I guess it didn't. You know, yeah, so you keep swinging yeah. and you protect yourself until the fight is over, as in the guy's down. And, and that is actually, yeah. although it looks very unrealistic, it's actually probably the most realistic thing about the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Funnily yep. enough. Yep. Huh. Okay. Um, all right. I do have to ask, because I was reading your um, your review of Jeffrey Forgang's translation of Pietro Monte. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And in it, you use an expression... The sword beard set. Now, yeah. I should point out for listeners who, who can't see you, I do not have a beard. You do have a beard. I'm just saying this. So yep. what is a sword beard? And what is the sword um, beard set? <laughs> this was, I I thought it was, it actually had a little bit more uh, uh, currency, but it may have actually been a coining of someone I did my master's with. Who, well, I was, yeah. Um, I I was talking about this sort of stuff in a very nerdy way to someone who, who, Yes, exposure to this is is uh, more superficial. And mentioned something about you know sword sword beards as a, a similar turn of phrase referring to like neck beards, the sort of super nerd kind of basement dwelling type people who are obsessed with something to the exclusion of you know, social style and, and yeah yeah, yeah. Hygiene so I mean and, it's okay it's it's uh it wasn't meant as a pejorative. It was more of a, a kind of. <laughs> <laughs> an acknowledgement of of a certain level of obsession. Um, I mean, you know, it's you know, like tech bros or uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that kind of a thing. So that's that's kind of what I thought of is that people who have, but but it does include people who have a very narrow interest um, within a historical topic, sometimes to the exclusion of important contextual history. Right. So. I often think of the people who who debate about whether or not something is a Gizarm or a Halberd or a Bill or, or a, you know, the sort yeah. of... The, it's a big metal blady thing on the end of a stick. Hit people yeah. with it. End yeah. I mean, I, I, am, I, am, I don't nerd out about those sorts of distinctions, yeah. but I get very, very nerdy about other things. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's funny because, I mean, the, the notion of typologies of weapons and stuff, yeah. that's one of the earliest, I mean, uh, was it a Burton... Um, who is a contemporary of uh, of uh, Sir Richard Burton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's like a it's like a catalog of sword types. So um, or that sort of thing. The uh, 
Ewart Oakshot's typology of, of mm. uh, grips and things. And of course, this has a value with, with dating things, figuring out where things were produced and where they're from. But the emphasis on that aspect of it can sometimes be distracting to somewhat more relevant things, like such as the historical context in which these things are used, how they're moving from sure. point A to point B. So with um, uh, the Collectania, um, my this is the sort of stuff that people might be familiar with, with one part of it, but not understand how it fits into an organic whole. Um, the uh, uh, the one Middle English verse version of uh, Vigidius's De Re Militari mm-hmm. often gets um, excerpted for the the little short piece where he describes the use of the Pell. Yeah, absolutely. When you and say it, Vigidius, I've seen that I think treated Pell. as it's as a separate text, like you know, the poem of the Pell. Like, no, this is a, oh yeah. No, that's not right. Okay. Okay. Oh, sorry. Uh, there was some, some technical. Yeah, well, we had a slight technical thing. Um, okay. So, yes, you were talking about Vegetius and the Pell. Yeah. So, this is the, the sort of example of how stuff gets missed from its historical context. So, that whole bit with this Middle English verse description of how to use a Pell and how to practice with sword is an adaptation of its Latin original, which is a fourth century late Roman thing. Um, originally in Latin, and that it's not a reflection of a contemporary, say, 15th century practice. Precisely. It's yeah. a 15th century adaptation of a literary work, which happens to talk about this. Right. And that's why that whole context is is important. So the that reference to people who are interested in this, but in, an, in a... Uh, uh, Narrowly exclusionary way. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So what do you think of Pietro Monte? Oh... That one, I <laughs> I had a hard time doing the review because there's so much I wanted to talk about with it right. because it was so it was so innovative. Yeah, but also uh, it was it was unique in its in its presentation of a of a whole bunch of information. But it was in, extremely traditional in how it did it. So it was adapting all of these pre existing techniques, like a lot of the stuff I'd studied already. You know, it's it's already part of a very well established literary genre, but. Um, but I mean, he, you know, he's got things in there where he's talking about how to read people. You know, what kind of fighter is this guy probably going to be? You know, this this is the sort of body language of someone who is experienced, or this is someone who is likely uh, sort of short tempered, or or might fall for uh, uh, faints, or or something like that. Or this is this one will be more conservative. You'll have to be more patient. Um, you know, sort of telling the difference between. Yeah, I, I'm reading this and I'm thinking this is this is the stuff we would talk about watching tournaments. We'd we'd, yeah. we'd watch everybody who fought, so we could figure out what their toolkit was, and say, okay, this is a this guy's a range fighter, this guy's a gunslinger, um, this guy's gonna you know use his size and he's gonna jump on you. This guy's likes reach. Um, this guy doesn't fight like a big guy. He's this great big guy, but he fights like a little guy, or he fights very slowly, or this guy's very aggressive. You know that kind of a thing. Yeah. And I'm reading this in Demonte. I'm like. I can't think of anybody else who's written like no. that with that degree of self-awareness. I mean, you can probably read as subtext in stuff, uh, in, you know, Lancelot stuff or the, the romances where you can kind of see there's parts of this there, but he's laying it out. He's like, yeah, this is this is the stuff, you know, you're, you're reading a 15th or 16th century equivalent of the guys sitting around the truck drinking beer in the parking lot and talking stick. <laughs> you know, it was just the it was just the, the weirdest thing hitting those 
those sections in particular in that book and uh, uh, having this really strong sort of recognizing kind of feeling. But yeah, no, it's a fascinating work. And I'm really glad that uh, that Boydale published that yeah. um, and made that more available. Yeah. yeah. And, and I should point out that I had Mike Prendergast on the show a while ago. Uh, we discussed Monte in detail. So interested mm-hmm. listeners can find yeah, a link yeah. to Mike's. Thing. We, and, yep. and we're going into lots of detail there. So, so <laughs> let, let me let me go on to my, my next thing because whenever I get a professional historian on the show, um, okay, the historical martial arts community has the historical stuff and the martial arts stuff. Yeah. And I mean, personally, I'm, I'm all about how to hit people with swords. I do the history to find out how to hit people with swords better, yeah. generally, right? Yeah. So I don't really think of myself as a historian usually. Um, so, as a professional historian, what advice would you give to the amateur historians in the historical martial arts community? What would we do to make our work more historically accurate? Right. Uh, it's, I thought about this question a lot, um, and I think there's really only two things. The first one is, if you're going to work with primary sources, make sure the source you've got, the edition, is, is as accurate as possible. So okay. this is probably the, the place where you will come into contact with academics how, most often. How do you do that? Well, that is tricky because, of course, with editions, if you don't know what you're looking at first, then, then yeah, it can be an issue. So if, if, you're, if you're looking at the text, you, know, you go, oh, hey, we've got a, an edition of, of whoever, um, check the degree of documentation. How careful is this edition in telling you where it's from? Um, whether it's a, a, a transcription of something, whether it's a translation, how uh, if it has a section in it on, you know, a note on the ed- on the edition or a, a note on the transcription or uh, editorial uh, guidelines for for how this was done. Um, if it tells you that, this is how you're going to know that that you're dealing with something that is um, probably safe to read. Um, some stuff won't tell you where it's from uh, mm. or. Or tells you that it's actually using, you know, Alfred Hutton's 1911 version, um, and then you have to, you might be better off just going and looking at that one and comparing it to what they're talking about. Because I have found texts where they've copied from an online transcription of Alfred Hutton and then made their own changes to it when they put it into their own book. So we're already <laughs> yeah. three removes from the manuscript. Well, four removes from the manuscript, three removes from the first printed edition, and the first printed edition is wrong. So, <laughs> so yeah, so that that's the first step, which of course is not an easy one. The other thing I think is um, remembering how this stuff is or isn't studied by sort of traditional historians. Um, for the most part, the where this stuff comes up, and I mean, I've got many examples of. Uh, Scholars who will mention stuff about combat or about um, fighting, you know, duels and things like this, who aren't really studying the duels. They're not, that isn't their focus and it never was. But they do mention it because, of course, it's a part of the, the broader history that they're talking about. And that uh, maybe uh, it may present a, a, a reading or an understanding of, of the period or of act- actions that someone who, who's more interested in it. Um, and is studying it, you know, on their own may find, um, you know, alienating because it, it's dis- it may seem dismissive, and it isn't. At least that's that's not the intention. 
often when you have these gaps in these texts or, or there isn't much attention paid to a certain topic, it's not because of a lack of interest. It's because of a lack of material to work with. Hmm. Um, so yeah. Or an editor who won't let you go there. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the lack of, of scholarship on this isn't necessarily because scholars don't care. It's, because scholars don't have much to work with. You know, I mean, this was kind of a running joke with with uh, my materials that I wrote a 112-page master's thesis with a 22-page bibliography on 400 lines of text. And it wasn't even <laughs> and it wasn't even a literary yeah. work. You know, like I mean, yeah, yeah. I didn't have the excuse of being like a, a you know, somebody studying the Bible or something like this. I mean, it's like no, these are these are technical works. This this is like fight recipes. Um, but the, the, you know, so some people, well, I mean, even Sidney Anglo's comments on, on this stuff where he said, yeah, there's this English material. It makes no sense to me. And that's as much as he could say about it. And it's yeah. not because he didn't, he didn't think they were interesting. It's because that was all you could say about them at the time. Yeah. And <laughs> um, that's pretty unless, much where I landed. Like yeah. they're interesting, yeah. but they're not particularly useful to me. I mean, when I've yeah. got Fury in this hand and... The English ones oh, in that yeah. hand. If I want to know yeah. how to hit people with swords in the 15th century, yeah. there's only one choice to make there. Pretty much, yeah. Um, yeah. But if you want to know how how you, know, you want, if you fall in love with these particular manuscripts, yeah, then you you dig and you dive and you write 112 pages on yeah. 400 lines of text and whatever, and yeah. you come to some understanding. But yeah. that for me, I mean, that's just too much work for not enough hitting. It, yeah, and the, and <laughs> you're absolutely right. It is it is often far too much work, and especially for the the sort of the economy of of academics that yeah. uh, uh, you know yes you can do a bunch of stuff about extremely obscure things but there is some stuff that's even too obscure for other academics so right. getting it out there you know it's like you, you just still have need to become the academic yeah. yeah 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 I mean it is a perennial problem of producing authoritative editions yeah because even people who should know what they're doing sometimes produce not such good translations, yeah. interpretations or whatever else. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, they're maybe in a slightly unfamiliar area or they're... So you yeah. can't even go by the name of the author. You have to have some kind of idea of yeah. what a good edition looks like. And I think... Yeah. I mean, some advice I got actually from Jeffrey Forgang himself hmm. um, was on finding authoritative models. And right. And actually, he wouldn't say this, but I will happily say this. You can look at Forgang's work for authoritative models as to what yeah. a translation, transcription, and sort of critical yeah. analysis of the text should look like. Yeah, yeah, and um, he's he's uh, you know classically trained. He's uh, right. graduated the uh, uh, Toronto uh, University of Toronto Pontifical Institute. Right. You know he knows he knows the field craft of uh, editing and transcription and, and producing those editions. Yeah. And he, even even with him, he's. You know, he didn't just sit on the first version he did for uh, for Brian Price. Um, he did. No, I, I saw a photocopy of half of that in 1999, oh. four years before oh, it I've, came out. I've got, yeah, I've got, I've got that one. I don't have, of course, his new, you know, that great big cased one. Oh, I do. Did. It's right over oh, there. It's gorgeous. Uh, yeah, I'd love it. Because, I mean, did they even tried to reproduce the foliation, right? Like the... Oh, no, they didn't, they the, didn't produce nope. the collation, but... okay. But Michael Chidester of Hema Bookshelf, his yeah. editions of Fiore oh. and various others, that produces the collation. He is going to do it. Okay. He has done it. I mean, I've, I've got, yeah. um, I think, four of his. And, oh, okay. And yeah. at least three of them, the collation is correct. Yeah. One of yeah. them, the collation was so weird in the original one 
and they decided not to reproduce it because it's basically yep. not a good collation. It's not a stable physical structure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, but, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah 133 was originally, well, for a while it was loose. It was yeah. in a portfolio. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that's neat. But yeah, I mean, he's, there's that. Um, of course, a lot of the German ones have been done in very good editions. Yeah. And of course, they have sort of a tradition of that. I mean, there's Gustav Herzl's sure. uh, 1880s ones. Um but yeah, it's but also Chris, like you said, the most of these facsimiles uh, or the really good editions aren't being published even by you know a more familiar academic press or with a sh a shorter run or something. I mean, Chivalry Bookshelf's all out of print. Um, I know Freelance Academy took over some of their titles. Yes, yeah, so, uh, yeah. I, I took mine back and published it myself. Yeah, yeah, and actually, and I've I've got your first one. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I remember, yeah. Uh, I got this in 05. Yeah. So. Yeah. The year after it but, came out. Well, but this is actually the only one of yours I've got. Which really? I feel oh, that's bad about that. It's shocking. It is, it is <laughs> well, the most out of date of all of my books. Oh, I'm just, yeah. No, I kind of understood you expected that. But it, I mean, it's also, it's it's a really good example of that approach. So it's, I mean, it's one of the, kind of one of the reasons why I got it. Um, but yeah, that's cute. I will, when, when we're done, I will send you a PDF of, the book of mine oh. I think you'll like the best. Sure. Okay. Which is my From Medieval Manuscript to Modern Practice, where oh, yeah, I take yeah. the Longshore Plays of Fury and I do a transcription. Well, first there's the picture, so you can yep. see what it looks like on the page. Yep. Then there's a transcription, my translation, what I think the translation is telling us to do, and then a yep. clip to a video of how I think that should be done. Oh, yeah. Which means that if you disagree with my interpretation, you can trace back what bit of right. my interpretation you actually disagree yeah. with. And yep. it could be that I am I have mistranscribed some bit of Fiore and therefore mistranslated it and therefore right. I'm using my left foot instead of my right. Yeah. Right? Or yeah. it could be that, yes, actually you agree with everything up to the video. Yep. <laughs> right? Or whatever. And it's but it just basically yeah. makes the whole process of this entirely yep. transparent, which I think yep. I think you might enjoy. Okay. I'll, well, I'll get a PDF over to you. Yeah, that would be that would be great. But it's it's funny too, because you bring that up that um how much of this and, and this is a case with all of the fight text, is that they are supplements to practice yeah so to demonstrate how they work you have to kind of do it you have to show yeah. it um and how many different steps in that process from your text to the the performance uh can affect that and so yeah so if you're not starting with you know with wagner um some of his, his earlier stuff he's not working with a with a reliable text but even when he is talking about it because he doesn't have a good source he can't sort of cross-reference it so carefully so he doesn't have line numbers. So in Harley, he you know has this quote from the Harley text, but you have to hunt through the Harley version to find that, and then to check whether or not there's a line break in this, or whether or not there's been some editorial punctuation that's broken up the instruction, or whether or not there's been one of Hutton's misreadings of a word, or a duplicate word, mm -hmm. stuff like this. And it's an enormous amount of, of work. And, and you'd only be doing that if you have that concern to begin with, that... Yeah. The person you're reading may not be working from an accurate text, um, so that's you know as as the sort of advice bit is make it as easy as possible for the people following your research to genuinely follow your research and yeah, see where it. it's coming from. Now that that is also an enormous amount of work for the person producing it, but yes. to a large extent, that's that's what all academics do is we have to show our work so that it can be kind of reproduced, basically. Yeah. So if you have the same sources I have, you have you know this sort of stuff that you're going to 
at least have the same material to start from. And then you can separate my interpretation from the source material. Right. Uh, and you're not going to be confused by it. Good advice. Okay. So you've obviously done lots of stuff, including far more degrees than any human being really needs. Um, Too many <laughs> I need, yeah. Yeah. Um, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? Right. Um, I, I really want to do something on um, Artemisia Gentileschi. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> oh, God, yes. And, I love uh, I think specifically, so, so for readers, do you, do you want to briefly explain who she is? Ah, uh, fabulous so painter. Readers. Yeah. Uh, she's, yeah, one of the most sort of uh, modern, famous uh, Renaissance painters. Um, she was a uh, daughter of another very successful painter. She did sort of more or less your usual commission work and stuff like this, paintings of saints and, and such. But she also did a series of... Uh, Biblical stuff, and I'm sp- yeah. specifically the one I'm interested Judith. in. Judith, Judith, yes, the Judith and Holofernes. Yes. Now there are. But she's three... hacking his head off. Oh, I know. There's yeah. The the one that most people know is that the with the the actual beheading of Holofernes. She yeah. Did, I think two versions of it that were mostly identical, and it's uh, if you compare that one with her contemporary Caravaggio, they they look completely different. I mean, yeah. Caravaggio, there's, you know, Helen is like, you know, and there's this little old lady maid with her. And she, you know, Helen uh, or Judith looks like she's concerned about getting blood on her. Yeah. And and the blood itself just looks like kind of yarn spinning out of his out of his yeah. neck. And with Gentileschi, you know, Judith is down. She's got an she, elbow up. She's, she's yeah, soaring just, it off. She, yeah. Like, she's fuck you. shoving it through. Yes. <laughs> like this, you know. Yes. And and her maid is there pinning Holofernes down. She's got yeah. a full weight on his body. Yeah. So there's a there's a, a physicality a to it that yeah. It's fantastic. The stuff I wanted to do is the two other paintings that she did in that series, which are after the uh, Holofernes has been finished off, and they're trying to make their way out of the camp. Yeah. And one painting has um, she's Judith is so it's it's mostly torso up. Judith is standing with a sword over her shoulder, and she's looking off in one direction with her servant. And the first time I saw that painting, and again, this is, I, I can credit the SCA for developing the eye for this, is they looked at how she's holding her hand and the sword isn't resting on her shoulder. It's, she is supporting it, but her hand's a little, kind of looks a little Relaxed. loose. Her elbow is fairly up. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, this is, she's ready to throw a shot if she needs to. She can just tighten yeah. her hand up, pop her elbow up and, and launch it. It's loaded. Yeah. And I thought, if I am reading that, from this image, and I'm just some kid who threw, swings sticks at people. Gentileschi's audience is people who are born into the, this. Yeah. This is you know they carry swords every day. Exactly. If if I'm getting this feel of threat off of that painting, they're probably going to see it too. Yeah. And the the other one she did is a similar one. Uh, it's more full body, um, and she's. Uh, She's got a sword down under her under her uh, left arm near her hip, and she's got her hand up, blocking light from a candle. She's in one thirty-three first ward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I found a, a direct analogy from a Messer manual yeah, with again the hand over Same the hip, thing. and and even the footwork looks probably like it's right. So it's uh, I think it's right leg lead on mm-hmm. that one, and so people describe this painting and they say that she's you know she's she's. Uh, uh, you know, shading this uh, candle to, well, I can't remember what they, they usually say, but I'm looking at this and I'm noticing, one, the, the, the shade hand that she has up to shade the candle 
means she has a shadow over her eye. So she's blocking the light out so she can see into a darker space off out of frame. And then she has the sword down here, which again is this loaded position. Yeah, and and (laughs) I suspect that she's making it so the candlelight doesn't shine off her sword. That too. Yeah, it probably So so whoever's in that room doesn't see it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking at these and thinking of, of just how literate Jetileski was in this sort of the physical aspect of it. So mm. her choice of models or for poses suggests she knows what people should look like when they're handling weapons. And that for her, it was important to convey that in the paintings. Yeah. Um, which... Or possibly to a, to a patron. Yes. Whoever she yeah, was I'm, painting it for may have been... Yeah, because I'm not sure... This. Some of the paintings were done sort of on spec... Um, mm-hmm. And some were done for specific sure. collectors, and so that could be another. So, so what are you going to do with these? You're going to write uh, a think, paper on them, or yeah, I think that is mostly it. Is sort okay. of put a paper together, presenting this argument that <clears throat> Gentileschi's choice of uh, body language, of positioning, and things like this is one indicating that she knows. Um, well, one making the argument that this is why these positions are this way that. Um, they're reflecting they communicate fencing language. Yeah. And that uh, Gentileski wanted to do that f- for whatever reason, either ah. because she, she knew it would connect with the audience or because of her own interest in verisimilitude. I think it's the period so, equivalent of, you know, TV shows where they hold the guns correctly or not. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's, uh, it's yeah. like, yeah. how many TV shows have been completely ruined because yep. someone is pointing a loaded pistol at the person yep. and to really emphasize how very much they're definitely going to shoot them in just a minute they rack the yep. slide yeah yeah yeah. like no I'm yeah. really going to shoot you it's like yep. Yep. you just lost the round well, yeah. that's just or stupid like, yep I always um, think of I, I explained to, to my students is like you know if you want to go into history be prepared to ruin every movie historical yeah. movie you're ever going to see Saving Private Ryan drives me nuts because the 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 extras don't hold their rifles properly. Okay. So all of the Germans are um, uh, Irish uh, defense force or something, and they've all been trained with pistol grip type rifles. Yeah. And they're given um, these fiberglass uh, uh, Mauser bolt action rifles, and they hold them by the by the grip. So when they run, they're holding them like that. Okay. Whereas if you watch any footage from the war of people- You hold them by the point of balance ahead of the trigger guard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They grab the balance point and they carry them that way. Or um, even, uh, I remember seeing this back in like 2003, so early on with the the second Gulf War. And there were, I think they were were Iraqi insurgents. So there's some news footage of Iraqis, um, you know, and they got balaclavas on and stuff. So they're trying to be anonymous. And they're walking around and they're all holding their AKs by the pistol grip down at their side, except one guy who has it up. Right. Uh, tucked up into the shoulder, like the uh, the high ready or whatever. Yeah. I don't remember what the term is, but it's like, okay, that That's guy. shoot. Yeah. That guy was trained in the West. <laughs> he knows <laughs> he knows what he's doing because no one else, you know, and I see it with uh, in uh, Ukraine, all the footage from Ukraine and stuff, seeing the different body yeah. language and realizing that the people who are the most switched on are the ones who have the little safety scissors, the safety cutter scissors mm-hmm. tucked into their uh, into their uh, plate carrier or something. If they don't have the scissors, one, they're usually Russian, and and two, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> it's like Why? that seems to be the indicator for for competence. Why? What are the scissors for? I don't know yet. Um, okay. I think because they're they're usually up there with a couple of uh, like uh, uh, felt tip markers. Yeah. 
And I'm pretty sure the two are put together. One, so you can cut somebody out of their gear yeah. if they're injured. And the pens are there so you can write on a tourniquet or something else um, when you did it so that right. the next people who deal with the casualty can, uh, they know when they, they need to undo it. Or you write down whether or not you gave them morphine or something like that. Right. So that seems, I'm pretty sure that's why it's there. Um, and it seems to just be something, because I haven't seen that prior to the Ukraine thing. So do you um, have military training? No. Okay. No. You, just, you just observe these things. Okay. I just study a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah. Now, one thing that I was, okay, before I go to that, um, yeah. do do send us pictures of the Gentileski pictures to put in the show yes. notes. Because yep. it'll be uh, instructive for people to go and actually have a look and, and see what we're talking about. Because I think I have these pictures pretty clear in my head, but um, yeah. not everyone <laughs> does that. Okay. But, um, a little birdie tells me that you hmm. have actually acted on the idea of having a podcast. Would you like to tell us about your podcast? Right. Um, yeah, I uh, like many academics, I am chronically underemployed. <laughs> um, but I also, you know, I, I enjoy teaching for as, as much work as it is. And I haven't been able to do any of that for quite a while. Um, so I started up a little podcast. It's on Patreon. It's the Dr. Violence podcast. Dr. Um, Violence. Yeah. So is and, it only uh, on Patreon or is it also um, available on, on regular podcast apps? Uh, I've, I will be looking into putting them on some of those. Mm -hmm. um, it just started in December. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it will probably be mirrored on other ones as well. Okay. Um, once I can sort that out. And uh, it's mostly, um, for the time being anyway, I'm doing a podcast version of the course I used to teach on the history of violence. So okay. From a historical perspective, how to how to go about understanding it and how one does it, uh, mostly through uh, a history of um, medieval and early modern English contexts, um, and then other related sort of topics. So the last, actually, the last one I did was about uh, um, uh, sorting out sources. So tracking a really weird bibliographic entry back to where it started. So some of the field craft of research sure. stuff. Yeah, this is the, the forensic bibliography uh, series. <laughs> so um, so stuff like that. So a little, mostly the historical stuff, but sometimes some contemporary discussions of things. So things like uh, uh, you know, modern issues of uh, interpersonal violence or um, vulnerable uh, groups or, or, uh, or persons, um, that kind of a thing. Okay. So, so people would find that at patreon.com, Dr. Violence? Uh, Yes, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna double check. I'll I'll send you links and stuff. Yeah, send me links. Too. Put in the show notes. That's probably best. Yeah, these are gonna be great show notes, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. So many pictures, so many sources. I'm gonna give you have to give you footnotes on it. That's Excellent. Um, all right, my last question: Somebody gives you a million dollars to spend in improving historical martial arts or any right. related field worldwide. Yeah. How would you spend it? Um, yeah, that's a tricky one too. Uh, you don't get to pay off your mortgage. No, I don't. Actually, my partner's already paid off. Oh, fantastic. Well, for this, uh, I don't deal with the money for obvious reasons. Um, uh, I think probably the best thing would be uh, if you could s set up, say, uh, uh, sort of like a research um, sort of workshop sort of thing to teach the basics of uh, source locating and criticism. So those sort of skills that people in my position often take for granted, but... Mm -hmm. 
are always reminded with a new say class of students that you have to learn this somewhere sometime. Yeah. So how to tell self-published material from stuff published by a legitimate publisher or the stuff that has gone through. I'm about to pull you up on that. Yeah. No, okay. I mean, I, legitimate. I, yes, you're right. Yeah, Self-published I, I, is I, not I, illegitimate. I'll give you a good no, example. You're right. Bertrand Russell's Philosophical Treatise, the most, yes. one of the most important books of the 20th century. Yeah. That he paid for that to be published yep. because Cambridge you're, you're University right. I, wouldn't touch it. Yeah, that's so. I I think I'm showing <laughs> my my prejudice against that from much earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, sure. when yeah, but you're right. You're absolutely right. But he, still, the the being able to tell what it is you're looking at and evaluate it without necessarily knowing much about the topic you're dealing with, I okay. guess, is the is the set of skills that will be the most useful for anybody working in any topic, but particularly this one. Um, so yeah, basically a, a school on how to do the basics of research um, and documentation so that you don't have to reproduce, like you don't have to uh, waste effort, mm -hmm. that you know how to locate work that other people have done and sort of benefit from it, that sort of stuff. And some basics on how to um, read or handle uh, primary sources, which yeah. mostly going to be through editions, but understanding what goes into an edition and what doesn't or or tell mm -hmm. the difference between the sort of the, the diplomatic editions from more working ones, that kind of a thing. Okay. I actually have an online course called Recreating Historical Sourcemanship from Historical Sources, mm. which is basically assuming you don't have any training in history and you want to do historical martial arts and you want to do your own research. How do you go about it? What do you need? How do you yeah. extract a usable methodology from the source? That kind of thing, right? Yeah, I would be very interested in your take on that. So I yeah. will, I will send you login details and whatnot, and yep. you can sure. have a look at it. And yep. and um, it's it's due for an update because it's the first okay. course I ever produced. So it's six years old now, okay. um, and I haven't really done anything to it in those six years. But yeah. I would be fascinated to see what you think I should yeah. do better in it. I. Yeah, I'd like to see that, yeah. Okay. So you'd set up a kind of yeah, training think, resource so that yeah. non-historians could pick up the basics so they could study historical yep. martial arts more effectively. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I think I think that would probably be it. That just the the basics of the field craft so that you can avoid those sort of pitfalls of the hyper focus or the, the sort yeah. of the uh, uh, the problems that come along with not understanding the context. Um, you know, the 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 how easy it is to think that the earliest English material is um, related sort of organically with anything that comes after it, um, those sorts of things. Uh, and, you know, if you got those sorts of questions, where do you go to find answers for it? Right. Uh, if, if you can't necessarily work it out on your own, that sort of thing, I think, I think that yeah. would be the most beneficial. Excellent. All right. Well, if I had the money, I would certainly at least think about giving it to you. <laughs> No. But sadly, I don't have a spare no. million. You give me just part of it. Just <laughs> All right. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Mark. It's been lovely thank having you. you on the show. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mark. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And of course, you should toddle along to swordpeople.com and join the fastest growing sword fighting club on the internet. It is by far 
the best place to spend time in a social media type setting if you want to talk about swords. So, swordpeople.com, I will see you there. And join us next week when I'll be talking to Mariana Lopez, who is a historical fencer and coach who started out in Mexico, now lives in the USA, and she is a co-founder of S-Fingers, the Sphinxes, an international network of female historical fencers. So you definitely don't want to miss that. It's a fascinating conversation. So subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. Music